Chapter Ten of the Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter Ten: The Second Expedition Successful. A bold decision needs to be followed by prompt action, lest the spirit that inspired it be weakened by delay. When once it had been fixed that there was to be another attempt to lay the Atlantic cable, no time was lost in carrying the resolve into execution. The telegraphic fleet was lying at Queenstown. The Niagara had arrived on the 5th of July, for the Agamemnon, which through some misunderstanding, had returned to the rendezvous in mid-ocean, thus crossing the Niagara on her track, did not get in till a week later. However, all were now there, safe and sound, and Mr. Field and Mr. Samuel Gurney went to the Admiralty and got an order which they telegraphed to the ships to get ready immediately to go to sea. Not an hour was lost. They had barely time to take in coal and other supplies for the voyage. Mr. Field hastened from England, and Professor Thomson from his home in Scotland, and in five days the squadron was under way, bound once more for the middle of the Atlantic. It was Saturday, the 17th of July, that the ships left on their second expedition. As they sailed out of the Cove of Cork, it was with none of the enthusiasm which attended their departure from Valentia the year before, or even from Plymouth on the 10th of June. Nobody cheered. Nobody bade them Godspeed. As the ships left the harbor, there was apparently no notice taken of their departure by those on shore, or in the vessels anchored around them. Everyone seemed impressed with the conviction that they were engaged in a hopeless enterprise, and the squadron seemed rather to have slunk away on some discreditable mission than to have sailed for the accomplishment of a grand national scheme. Many even of those on board felt that they were going on a fool's errand, that the company was possessed by a kind of insanity, of which they would soon be cured by another bitter experience. On leaving this second time, it was agreed that the squadron should not try to keep together, but each ship make its way to the given latitude and longitude, which was the appointed rendezvous in mid-ocean. The Niagara, being the largest and able to carry the most coal, kept under steam the whole way, and arrived first, and waited several days for the other ships to appear. The Valorous came next, and then the Gorgon, and last of all the Agamemnon, which had been saving her coal for the return voyage, and had been delayed for want of a little of that wind which, in the former expedition, she had had in too great abundance. Says the English correspondent on board, For several days in succession there was uninterrupted calm, the moon was just at the full, and for several nights it shone with a brilliancy which turned the sea into one silvery sheet, which brought on the dark hull and white sails of the ship in strong contrast to the sea and sky, as the vessel lay all but motionless on the water, the very impersonation of solitude and repose. Indeed, until the rendezvous was gained, we had such a succession of beautiful sunrises, gorgeous sunsets, and tranquil moonlight nights, as would have excited the most enthusiastic admiration of any one but persons situated as we were. But by us such scenes were regarded only as the annoying indication of the calm, which delayed our progress and wasted our coal. By dint, however, of a judicious expenditure of fuel, and a liberal use of the cheaper motive power of sail, the rendezvous was reached on Wednesday, the 28th of July, just eleven days after our departure from Queenstown. The rest of the squadron came in sight at nightfall, but at such a distance that it was past ten o'clock on the morning of Thursday, the twenty-ninth, before the Agamemnon joined them. The day was beautifully calm, so no time was to be lost before making the splice. Boats were soon lowered from the attendant ships, 
the two vessels made fast by a hawser, and the Niagara's end of the cable conveyed on board the Agamemnon. About half-past twelve o'clock the splice was effectually made. In hoisting it out from the side of the ship, the leaden sinker broke short off and fell overboard, and there being no more convenient weight at hand, a thirty-two-pound shot was fastened to the splice instead, and the whole apparatus was quickly dropped into the sea without any formality, and indeed almost without a spectator, for those on board the ship had witnessed so many beginnings to the telegraphic line that it was evident they despaired of there even being an end to it. The stipulated two hundred and ten fathoms having been paid out, the signal to start was hoisted, the horse cast loose, and the Niagara and Agamemnon started for the last time for their opposite destinations. At this moment the ships were nearly in mid-ocean, but not exactly. Mr. Field, who never indulged in poetical descriptions, but always gave the figures stating this precise latitude and longitude, and from what quarter the wind blew, and how many fathoms deep the ocean was, and how many miles of cable were on board, made the following entry in his journal. Thursday, July twenty-ninth, Latitude 52 degrees 9 minutes north, longitude 32 degrees 27 minutes west. Telegraph fleet all in sight. Sea smooth, light wind from southeast to south-southeast, cloudy. Splice made at 1 p.m. Signals through the whole length of the cable on board both ships perfect. Depth of water 1,500 fathoms. Distance to the entrance of Valentia Harbor 813 nautical miles. And from there to the telegraph house the shore end of the cable is laid. Distance to the entrance of Trinity Bay, Newfoundland, 822 nautical miles. And from there to the telegraph house at the head of the Bay of Bulls, arm, 60 miles, making in all 882 nautical miles. The Niagara has 69 miles further to run the Agamemnon. The Niagara and Agamemnon have each 1,100 nautical miles of cable on board, about the same quantity as last year. And now, as the ships are fairly apart and will soon lose sight of each other, we will leave the Agamemnon for the present to pursue her course toward Ireland, while we follow our own Niagara to the shores of the New World. At first, of course, while all hope for success, no one dared to expect it. They said afterwards that Mr. Field was the only man on board who kept his courage through it all. But the chances seemed many to one against them, and the warnings were frequent to excite their fears. That very evening about sunset, all again seemed lost. We quote from Mr. Field's journal, at forty-five minutes past seven p.m., ship's time, signals from the Agamemnon cease, and the tests supplied by electricians showed that there was a want of continuity in the cable, but the insulation was perfect. Kept on paying out from the Niagara very slowly, and constantly applying all kinds of electrical tests until ten minutes past nine, ship's time, when again commenced receiving perfect signals from the Agamemnon. At the same moment, the English ship had made the same relief from anxiety. The next day there was a fresh cause of alarm. It was found that the Niagara had run some miles out of her course. Comparing the distance run by observation and by patent log, there was a difference of sixteen miles and a third. With such a percentage of loss, the cable would not hold out to reach Newfoundland. This was alarming, but it was soon explained. The mass of iron in the ship had affected the compass, so that it no longer pointed to the right quarter of the heavens. Had the Niagara been alone on the ocean, this might have caused serious trouble, but now appeared the great advantage of an attendant ship. It was at once arranged that the Gorgon should go ahead and lead the way. As she had no cable on board, her compasses were subject to no deviation. Accordingly, she took her position in the advance, keeping the line along the great circle arc, which was the prescribed route. From that moment there was no variation, or but a very slight one. The two methods of computing the distance, by log and by observation, nearly coincided, 
and the ship varied scarcely a mile from her course till she entered Trinity Bay. It is not necessary to follow the whole voyage, for the record is the same from day to day. It is the same sleepless watching of the cable as it runs out by day and night, and the same anxious estimate of the distance that still separates them from land. Communication is kept up constantly between the ships. Mr. Field's journal contains entries like these. Saturday, July 31st. By eleven o'clock had paid out for the Niagara three hundred miles of cable. At forty-five minutes past two, received signals from the Agamemnon that they had paid out from her three hundred miles of cable. At thirty-seven minutes past five, finished coil on the berth deck, and commenced paying out from the lower deck. Monday, August 2nd. The Niagara getting light and rolling very much. It was not considered safe to carry sail to steady ship, for in case of accident it might be necessary to stop the vessel as soon as possible. Passed and signaled the Cunard steamer from Boston to Liverpool. Same day about noon, imperfect insulation of cable detected in sending and received signals from the Agamemnon, which continued until forty minutes past five when all was right again. The fault was found to be in the wardroom, about sixty miles from the lower end, which was immediately cut out and taken out of the circuit. Tuesday, August 3rd, at a quarter past eleven, ship's time, received signals from on board the Agamemnon that they had paid out from her 780 miles of cable. In the afternoon and evening, passed several icebergs. At ten minutes past nine p.m., ship's time, received signal from the Agamemnon that she was in water of 200 fathoms. At twenty minutes past ten p.m., ship's time, Niagara in water of 200 fathoms and informed the Agamemnon of the same. Wednesday, August 4th, Depth of water less than two hundred fathoms. Weather beautiful, perfectly calm. Gorgon in sight, sixty-four miles from the telegraph house. Received signal from Agamemnon at noon that they had paid out from her nine hundred and forty miles of cable. Passed this morning several icebergs. Made the land off entrance to Trinity Bay at eight a.m. Entered Trinity Bay at half-past twelve. At half-past two, we stopped sending signals to Agamemnon for fourteen minutes, for the purpose of making splice. At 5 p.m. saw Her Majesty's steamer Porcupine, which had been sent by the British government to Newfoundland to watch for the telegraph ships coming to us. At half-past seven, Captain Otter of the Porcupine came on board of the Niagara to pilot us to the anchorage near the telegraph house. Footnote A. The spot chosen as the terminus of the Atlantic Cable, with the views around it, both on the water and on land, is thus described by a correspondent. All who have visited Trinity Bay, Newfoundland, with one consent, allow it to be one of the most beautiful sheets of water they ever set eyes upon. Its color is very peculiar, an inexpressible mingling of the pure blue ocean with the deep evergreen woodlands and the serene blue sky. Its extreme length is about eighty miles, its breadth about thirty miles, opening boldly into the Atlantic on the northern side of the island. At its southwestern shore, its branches into the Bay of Bull's Arm, which is a quiet, safe, and beautiful harbor, about two miles in breadth, and nine or ten in length, running in a direction northwest. The depth of the water is sufficient for the largest vessels. The tide rises seven or eight feet, and the bay terminates in a beautiful sand beach. The shore is clothed with dark green fir trees, which, mixed with birch and mountain ash, present a pleasing contrast. The land rises gradually from the water all around, so as to afford one of the most agreeable town sites in the island. You ascend only about a quarter of a mile from the water, and there are no longer trees, but wild grass like an open prairie. Here are found at this season myriads of the upland cranberries, upon which unnumbered ptarmigan, or the northern partridge, feed. 
the raspberry, baked appleberry, and the whortleberry are also common. Numerous little lakes may be seen in the open, elevated ground from which flow rivulets, affording abundance of fine trout. After ascending for about a mile and a half, you are then probably three hundred or four hundred feet above the tide, and nothing can exceed the beauty of the scene when, at one view, you behold the placid waters of both Trinity and Placentia bays, the latter sprinkled with clusters of verdant islands. You can now descend westward as gradually as you came up from the telegraph landing to the shores of Placentia Bay, where there is an excellent harbor and admirable fisheries, skirting the shore, and the accompanying road of the land telegraph line leading from St. John's westward through the island to Cape Ray. At this season of the year, game is very abundant. Reindeer in great numbers, bears, wolves, others very numerous, the large northern hare, foxes, wild geese, ducks, etc., about four miles southward of the entrance of the bay of Bull's Arm, on the shore of Placentia Bay, is situated the extraordinary La Manche lead mine, the property of the telegraph company, already yielding a rich supply of remarkably pure galena. The place where the cable is landed is memorable in the history of the island as the naval battleground between the French and English in their early struggle for the exclusive occupancy of the valuable fisheries along the coast. End footnote. Thursday, August 5th. At forty-five minutes past one a.m., Niagara anchored. Total amount of cable paid out since splice was made, ten hundred and sixteen miles, six hundred fathoms. Amount of cable paid out over distance run, one hundred and thirty-four miles, six hundred fathoms, being a surplus of about fifteen percent. At two a.m., I went ashore in a small boat, and awoke persons in charge of the telegraph house half a mile from the landing, and informed them that the telegraph fleet had arrived and were ready to land the end of the cable. At forty-five minutes past two, received signal from the Agamemnon that she had paid out ten hundred and ten miles of cable. At four a.m., delivered a telegraphic dispatch for the Associated Press to be forwarded to New York as early in the morning as the offices of the line were open. At quarter past five a.m., telegraph cable landed. At six, end of cable carried in a telegraph house and received very strong currents of electricity through the whole cable from the other side of the Atlantic. Captain Hudson of the Niagara then read prayers and made some remarks. At 1 p.m., Her Majesty's steamer Gorgon fired a royal salute of 21 guns. Thus simply was the story told that in a few hours was to send a thrill throughout the continent. To complete the narrative of the expedition, it is necessary to include the voyage of the Agamemnon, the best of which is given in the letter of the correspondent of the London Times. We quote from the time of junction in mid-ocean, just as the ships were sailing eastward and westward. For the first three hours the ships proceeded very slowly, paying out a great quantity of slack, but after the expiration of this time the speed of the Agamemnon was increased to about five knots per hour, the cable going at about six, without indicating more than a few hundred pounds of strain upon the dynamometer. Shortly after six o'clock a very large whale was seen approaching the starboard bow at a great speed, rolling and tossing the sea into foam all around, and for the first time we felt the possibility of the supposition that our second mysterious breakage of the cable might have been caused, after all, by one of these animals getting foul of it under water. It appeared as if it was making direct for the cable, and great was the relief of all when the ponderous living mass was seen slowly pass astern, just grazing the cable where it entered the water, but fortunately without doing any mischief. All seemed to go well up to about eight o'clock, the cable paid out from the hold with an evenness and regularity which showed how carefully and perfectly it had been coiled away, 
and to guard against accidents which might arise in consequence of the cable having suffered injury during the storm, the indicated strain upon the dynamometer was never allowed to go beyond seventeen hundred pounds, or less than one quarter what the cable was estimated to bear, and thus far everything looked promising of success. But in such a hazardous work no one knows what a few minutes may bring forth, for soon after eight an injured portion of the cable was discovered about a mile or two from the portion paying out. Not a moment was lost by Mr. Canning, the engineer on duty, in setting men to work to cobble up the injury as well as time would permit, for the cable was going out at such a rate that the damaged portion would be paid overboard in less than twenty minutes, and former experience had shown us that to check either the speed of the ship or the cable would, in all probability, be attended by the most fatal results. Just before the lapping was finished, Professor Thompson reported that the electrical continuity of the wire had ceased, but that the insulation was still perfect. Attention was naturally directed to the injured piece as the probable source of the stoppage, and not a moment was lost in cutting the cable at that point, with the intention of making a perfect splice. To the consternation of all, the electrical tests applied showed the fault to be overboard, and in all probability some fifty miles from the ship. Not a second was to be lost, for it was evident that the cut portion must be paid overboard in a few minutes, and in the meantime the tedious and difficult operation of making a splice had to be performed. The ship was immediately stopped, and no more cable paid out than was absolutely necessary to prevent it breaking. As the stern of the ship was lifted by the waves, a scene of the most intense excitement followed. It seemed impossible, even by using the greatest possible speed, and paying out the least possible amount of cable, that the junction could be finished before the part was taken out of the hands of the workmen. The main hold presented an extraordinary scene. Nearly all the officers of the ship, and of those connected with the expedition, stood in groups about the coil, watching with intense anxiety the cable, as it slowly unwound itself nearer and nearer the joint while the workmen, directed by Mr. Canning, under whose superintendence the cable was originally manufactured, worked at the splice as only men could work who felt that the life and death of the expedition depended upon their rapidity. But all their speed was to no purpose, as the cable was unwinding within a hundred fathoms, and, as a last and desperate resource, the cable was stopped altogether, and, for a few minutes, the ship hung on by the end. Fortunately, however, it was only for a few minutes, as the strain was continually rising above two tons, and it would not hold on much longer. When the splice was finished, the signal was made to loose the stopper, and it passed overboard safely enough. When the excitement consequent upon having so narrowly saved the cable had passed away, we awoke to the consciousness that the case was still as hopeless as ever, for the electrical continuity was still entirely wanting. Preparations were consequently made to pay out as little rope as possible, and to hold on for six hours, in the hopes that the fault, whatever it might be, might mend itself before cutting the cable and returning to the rendezvous to make another splice. The magnetic needle and the receiving instruments were watched closely for the returning signals, when in a few minutes the last hope was extinguished by their suddenly indicating dead earth, which tended to show that the cable had broken from the Niagara, or that the insulation had been completely destroyed. In three minutes, however, everyone was agreeably surprised by the intelligence that the stoppage had disappeared, and that the signals had again appeared at their regular intervals from the Niagara. It is needless to say what a load of anxiety this news removed from the minds of everyone, but the general confidence in the ultimate success of the operations was much shaken by the occurrence, for all felt that every minute a similar accident might occur. For some time the paying out continued as usual. 
but toward the morning another damaged place was discovered in the cable. There was fortunately, however, time to repair it in the hold, without in any way interfering with the operations beyond, for a time slightly reducing the speed of the ship. End of Part 1 of Chapter 10 Recorded by Alex C. Tillander www.bookbanter.net